Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode, I welcome Professor Dame Leslie Regan. I do think that the key to all this is is education. So, you know, there's a marvellous quote by that fabulous man, Sir Michael Marmot. He says, if there was a single intervention that I could impose to improve health, it would be education. And in a global context, the education of women, because when you educate women, everybody benefits from it. A leading voice in women's health, Professor Regan is only the second ever woman and the first in 64 years to be elected as president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. From the GDST, this is raise her up and sharing her experiences and insights on the importance of open communication around periods. This is Professor Dame Leslie Regan. So Professor Regan, we are honoured to have you join us as part of this Wellbeing of Women episode within the Raise Her Up podcast. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start by asking you, why do you think that there is this mystique and taboo around periods still in 2021? Well, you you choose the words well, mystique and taboo it is. And I suspect it's because it's all to do with fertility and sex. And those are two issues that we find very difficult to talk about. I talk about them all the time, but I'm a gynecologist. I'm also female. I'm sort of given permission to do so. And I'm also a very no-nonsense doctor. So that's, I think, is probably what the problem is. You know, there's a young girl, and then when she becomes about 10 or 11, on average, she will start to have periods, uh, menstrual periods. So she will have a bleed from her womb lining about 12 times a year for the next 40 years of her life. And that's a fact. So this is a very normal part of females' lives and living. Um, And what I think we need to try and do is to dispel this mystique, because if we can help young girls and then young women understand that this is an entirely normal bodily function, we instill in them a little bit of understanding about what's normal and what's abnormal, or rather, when I say abnormal, I mean things that they shouldn't have to suffer with on a monthly basis, 12 times a year, then we would make an enormous difference to their lives, not just about their personal or physical lives, but also their educational lives. I can't tell you how many times I see young girls or the mothers of young girls who are worried about the fact that their daughter finds it very difficult to go to school at period time, and as a result, often calls a sickie. And then often you find that the family, in a very well-meaning way, colludes with that and says, okay, well, we'll have to find a way around this for you. Whereas what I would like to do, Kathy, is to try and make this such a normal part of life that it doesn't matter whether this girl going to school has got a male teacher or a female teacher, whether she's at a co-ed school or a single-sex school, that it's just something's happening to her. And the likelihood is that there'll be another few other girls in that class that day that the same thing's happening to, because it is just so normal. And of course, 
if we didn't have periods or if, if girls who can't have periods often find that they have problems having children. And although I don't subscribe to the Margaret Atwood handmaiden's tale view that women are only there to incubate babies and drop them, it is a very, very important part of a girl's and woman's life and biological life that she is able to have children and that evolution continues. Mm. It also, you know, we seem to be extraordinarily reticent in our society about talking about sex. And yet, I think, Kathy, you'd agree with me that most of the human beings you know like to have sex. <laughs> I, think I think that's a very normal thing. Yes. Um, and, you know, let's actually embrace that and say, isn't that wonderful? And find ways that girls and boys and women and men uh, can enjoy having sex with whoever they want, I'm not being prescriptive here, with whomever they want and teach them uh, or show them and educate them about the ways that they can do this safely um, and enjoyably um, and only become pregnant. And that's the important thing, only become pregnant if and when they want to be and with whom they want to be. There's a whole issue as well about gender-based violence, which, as you know, is the other pandemic going on in our world at the moment. And I would say it's thanks to COVID, really, I think that people are talking about it more, although it has accelerated the problem because of the lockdown. And so I think the onset of periods is almost like a signal to that family or that this girl is now potentially a childbearer and that brings it with it all sorts of other issues about sex and gender-based violence and norms. It's a very complicated topic, but I'm sure everyone would benefit if we talked about it more openly. What a brilliantly open start to this episode. Thank you. And also, let's just, let's just revisit that statistic. 12 times a year for 40 years. There is absolutely no reason why this should not be completely normalised. Because it happens, as you say, every day for such a long period of our lives as women. In my experience, certainly as a teacher, as a mother, periods are more openly discussed in this country um, in recent years. They've certainly become more politicised as well, I think, with you know VAT on sanitary products being abolished at the start of uh, 2021, um, campaigns to end period poverty, etc. Tell us about the changes that you've seen in the way that people approach periods throughout your career. Well, I suppose I should preempt that question, Kathy, by reminding everybody that my great-grandmother probably didn't have 12 periods a year for 40 years of her life because she had many more children. So there's been an evolution in our society that most women are going to have an average of two children, let's, let's you know, also. So that means that she's got a lot more time to be having menstrual periods and a lot more time in which she's got to, if she wants to have regular, enjoyable sex, she needs to have reliable contraception. So um, I think there's all sorts of things about how things have changed. I mean, when I first went into medicine, gynecology was something we sort of talked about rather quietly. Um, and I remember the reason I became a gynecologist was because I had the most wonderful female mentor at medical school. She just instilled in me how, how joyful it was to be able to look after girls and women throughout their life course because, and I think that's one of the things that I've seen that things have really, my, my focus has changed very much from being a young trainee desperately trying to climb up the medical greasy pole and wanting to become a bit of a specialist in a certain area because that was the advice I'd got. And then as I've grown older and hopefully a bit wiser, I've realized that in fact, it's the very ordinary day-to-day -day things that really women and girls need help with. And my, my sort of practice has become much more life course and public health focused rather than pure gynecology in an ivory tower teaching hospital. 
I went down a route of becoming highly specialist and running a, a clinic about repeated miscarriages and stillbirth that had an international clientele. You know, people came from all over the world to train with us here. Although I still do some of that work, much of my focus is trying to change policy about everyday things that really, really matter to girls and women. And I would add that they have to be periods, contraception, you know, the best way to embark on a pregnancy with the best outcome, two patients there, a mother and her baby, the best ways to go through the later years. And also, and very linked in with periods, is the fact that it's an inevitability now that almost every woman listening to this podcast will go through the menopause because we all live so long now. And when we get to the, about the age of 51 in the Western world, that's the average age of menopause. So so I'm going to actually live, Cathy, for longer post-menopausally than I was reproductive. And so we've got to think about that as the continuum. So the periods are one bit of this life course, and then menstruation stops, and that's the menopause, the pausing of menstruation, signifying that the woman can no longer have children, uh, at least naturally. And so these are all part of this life course. So in answer to your question, it's changed because I think we used to be very specialist about things that were important. But I think the the emphasis now is thinking about women in a much more um, holistic way about what really matters to them and their life and their family life as well, if, they, if, they, if they're part of a family. Let me take you back to something you said just now about the importance of the female mentor who inspired you to have the career that you've had. You were only the second ever woman and the first in 64 years to be elected as president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. What did that mean to you and what was the significance of that? Well, I, I always thought it was rather extraordinary that um, a college of professionals whose life work was looking after girls and women had only had one female president. And she was the most amazing woman. Her name was Hilda Lloyd, and she was in the presidential role between 1949 and 1952. So just after, the year after the, the NHS came into being in, in 48, and just a couple of years after the end of the Second World War, I've read all of her diaries. And I'm amazed, actually, by how similar the problems that she faced were to the ones that I faced. I mean, okay, she had bigger obstacles to climb. Um, for example, in her, she campaigned before she became president, when women got married, that they didn't have to give up work. She never had children. And I, there's no suggestion in her diaries that was because she couldn't. And she campaigned just to stay in work when she got married and to be able to continue working. She was an amazing character. Um, what did it mean to me? It meant an enormous amount to me because I wanted to change the way the Royal College functioned because I felt that it was very much um, a college that looked after professionals and because it had always been run by men, it was very sort of male orientated, which is not wrong. I'm not anti-men at all. Um, love them to bits, the ones I care about. But I did feel that it was really important that we change some things. And most importantly, I wanted the RCOG to become the go-to place for women's health. I wanted it to be the place where people went to. And also, I recognised by this time, when I was applying to be the president in, in 2014-15, or thinking about it then, I realised that I wasn't going to be able to change things in a sustainable way unless I got the politicians and the policymakers on board. So I wanted them to be saying, oh, if we've got a problem, 
what does the RCOG think about this? What's their opinion? That's what mean, meant a lot to me, being able to, I don't mean walk in the corridors of power, but actually know who I could go to to help them get me to change things. And I found them remarkably receptive because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're a politician or a policymaker, you want to be successful. And if you can go to a place that gives you common sense advice that's accurate, why wouldn't you go to them? So that's what I tried to do. And I think we were quite successful. So you have more of a kind of a lobbying position, you mean? Yes. And also um, a position of influence and being recognised as being the people, the go-to place, because why wouldn't you go to the place that gave you the right information and also provided solutions? So uh, at the end of my three year and a half years as president, I published a document called Better for Women, which was uh, frankly very critical of women's health services and the disproportionate disadvantages I think women's health has suffered due to the funding cuts in the NHS and public health I was absolutely determined that this report would include a practical solution for every time we made a critical comment. You know, period problems and period poverty, we said, but this is what you could do. And when we talked about the fact that cervical screening programs, which we used to lead the world in, were really way, way under um, utilised now because women were finding it very difficult to get an appointment to go for it. We came up with solutions, you know, one-stop clinics where you could go and have everything done. So I, I think it's a question of um, building trust in the people who are making those decisions. But I'm firm believer if you give them honest, straightforward advice, there's no point in them going to other people if you're helping them with it. And of course, we were doing it all pro bono for them as well. So let's go back to what you were saying before about having that lobbying position, thinking about um, how to make the lives of women and girls better through advising the people in power. And I sure you would agree that most of the people in power are men. So do you, I mean, do you think that dismantling these negative social norms, the menstrual taboos that we spoke about earlier on, does that play a, a role in the fight for gender equality, would you well, say? Well, I hope so, because otherwise I'll have been wasting my time. <laughs> but I hope so. And, you know, uh, I remember very vividly um, the day in September 2015 when the Millennium Development Goals ended and the Sustainable Development Goals started or they were launched. Um, there's a most iconic picture of all 17 of these Sustainable Development Goals all, all plastered over the United Nations building in New York. And... Sustainable Development Goal 5 is the most exciting one, I think. It's to empower all girls and women and achieve gender equality by 2030. And that's not just because I'm a woman and I want women to be in a position of power or influence. It's because there is really, really clear evidence that when you educate women and you empower them and you make them equal, that the whole of the rest of society um, benefits. So uh, the strap line to my, my report we thought was better for women, better for everyone. And there is irrefutable evidence now, um, mostly discussed by male directors of the United Nations, that empowering women, particularly via education, uh, is the key one. So that gets us back to our theme, because many, many girls, of course, leave school or don't attend school um, as frequently as they should because of problems with periods, because of the taboos and the mystique that we touched on earlier. And we also know as well that when girls have an unplanned pregnancy in their teens, that the biggest problem is not the teenage pregnancy, 
The biggest problem is that they usually leave full-time education. It's very rare for them to go back to continue it. And so you've effectively lost a life um, or you've lost the ability to to empower that girl. And there's very clear evidence, Cathy, as well, is that the children, girls and boys, of women that have had a teenage pregnancy invariably go on and have teenage pregnancies themselves. So there's a, a whole culture that builds up and there's a, a, if you like, a lack of expectation or aspiration. Um, the education of teenagers and adolescents is absolutely crucial, both boys and girls. So I'm delighted that, you know, you're doing this and you're including men and boys in this because I think it's just as important they understand about it all so that they can help the people that they care about. And I'm sure there isn't a father or a brother um, who will listen to this who won't think, oh, well, if I knew about that, of course I'll help. Mm. It's interesting. Earlier on when you were talking about the two patients that you deal with, the mum and baby, I wondered what role dads can play in that and how you go about you know, engaging men, engaging fathers in the work that you do. Well, I think by trying to demystify it and, and trying to simplify it, and I don't mean that in a patronising way, but um, th- there's a bit of a tendency, I think, often with doctors to complicate things and saying, oh, it's very complicated and um, it's a big, you know, I haven't got really time to explain. I mean, I've always believed that the more expert you are in your subject, whatever it is, whether it's nuclear physics driving a bus or, 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 or being a gynecologist, that if you really know your onions, then you can explain it in very, very simple terms. And when I say at any intellectual level, again, I'm not trying to be patronising, but you know, you become quite skilled, I think, um, at judging when people walk through the door or nowadays when they come on the Zoom call, you have to really quickly make judgments about how you're going to pitch this. Now, you don't always get it right, but with experience and a bit of wisdom and a bit of longevity, I suppose, you tend to do it better. And I have always been impressed by how if I take the time and trouble to explain to an adolescent girl or a young woman what the problem is that we're trying to deal with, how much better she is able to help herself. So I suppose what I'm interested in here is that we make women part of the solution, girls and women, not do things to them, but they become part of the solution because when they are empowered to know what to do to help themselves, they do. And the extraordinary thing about women, of course, is that not only are they 51% of the population and and undertake the vast majority, two thirds of all the caring responsibilities in society, but they also influence the behaviour of the other 49%. When you know about how to do something for the better, how to avoid a particular problem, you don't keep it to yourself, Cathy. You tell all the people at home, some of whom will be men, and you'll tell your next door neighbours, you'll tell your wider family, you may be part of a community group, you'll tell them. So it's a little bit like a sort of a, a tsunami effect, isn't it? That you get women to be empowered and understand what they can do and they really share it with the rest of society. So I think making them part of the solution is absolutely key to all this. Yeah, I mean, you've previously said we have to persuade the government that the health and wealth of a nation is determined by the health of its girls and women. Yes, and I firmly and passionately believe that. In each episode of Razor Up, we hear from a member of our GDSC family giving their perspective on the matter at hand. This is Emma Patterson, who is head of Croydon High School. In October 2021, I launched Croydon High's period project. I led a series of workshops with our girls and and I also launched the project in my blog with parents. The response, I think, demonstrates just how necessary an approach like ours is. We are learning that so many of our 
pupils are battling heavy or painful periods. So we're, we're talking about management, but we're also saying that it's not okay to suffer with severe painful periods month on month. And it's not okay to experience seriously destabilizing mood swings month on month. And that there are techniques to look after yourself that can really help. Um, and if they don't help, then it's, you know, it's still not okay. There are treatments that can help. So that seems to have really resonated with those who are suffering. And so by opening up the conversation, we're recognizing who needs more help. The second priority is that we're addressing more practical things. So for example, we're putting sanitary products into the toilets and we're trying to encourage them to find some more sustainable ways of managing their periods for more regular use. We are also creating a zone where they can go. So just for 20 minutes or so to have a chill out, grab a hot water bottle, have a bite to eat, things that we know help. Obviously, those things are available to them already now. But the difference is at the moment they have to go to the nurse or they have to lie in the bed in the nurse's station. So, of course, the message there is that they are ill and there's something wrong rather than what we're trying to achieve, which is to build suitable coping strategies that they can learn to adopt. The biggest stumbling block at the moment is how we encourage girls to keep swimming. So we're exploring period swimwear, for example. The girls are telling me that helping them think through all of this is really appreciated. They learn about the biology. They learn why it's happening. What they also really need is tips and techniques that they can choose from and helping them monitor which are working and which aren't. And I think that's crucial. It needs to be deeper than just saying, try eating something. So we're really thinking about these issues and how we support pupils. And I've been pleased that our teachers have been so on board. And I absolutely include our male teachers. We've actually brought in a question at interview on this so that we're sure we're employing people who are comfortable talking about this with girls. But I'm not even sure that that would have been necessary given the response from our existing teachers, which has been really positive. So we believe this is a really exciting and hopefully empowering project for our girls. You have worked uh, overseas with the WHO. How does the landscape around women's reproductive health in the UK compare to that of sub-Saharan Africa? Is there actually the huge difference that we would imagine? There's nowhere in sub-Saharan Africa that has a health service, an NHS free at the point of delivery, or indeed in Southeast Asia that's got the same sort of national passion about an institution like the NHS. I've worked with WHO, with FIGO, the Federation of International Gynecologists and Obstetricians, of which I'm currently the Secretary General. And I've worked with the RCOG, who have also got a lot of interest overseas because 50% of obstetricians and gynecologists who are members of the RCOG are working overseas. So it's the most global of all the royal colleges um, professionally. But I learned an enormous amount um, working overseas and this truism that's sometimes banded around and, you know, global health is a two-way process. If you become interested in global health, you give and you also get back. So I learned as much from my global South colleagues as they got from me. And one of the best examples, I think, was in 2015. Um, I was at the RCOG. I was the vice president. And I managed to secure a very, very large sum of money from um, an anonymous donor in the States. 
to undertake a family planning program in sub-Saharan Africa. And we chose to do this, or rather the donor asked us to do this in in, um, the Western Cape of South Africa and in Tanzania. It was incredibly challenging because we had to set up a family planning program that was a post-delivery family planning program, which is unheard of at the time. And the reasoning being, of course, that the vast majority of women having babies, the only time they would see a a medical professional, and we weren't talking doctors necessarily. In Tanzania, there are very few gynecologists. We were talking about anybody who who helps in the maternity uh, services. We recognized that this was one of the few times that a woman was at an in a facility or saw a healthcare professional and that If we didn't offer her long-acting reversible contraception before she left with her baby, there's no way she's going to walk back for another four days for a postnatal visit at six weeks. I mean, it's just completely ludicrous. Um, And we were also actually organising to ensure that abortion care was much safer. What was extraordinary was that the programme was so successful. And it was successful, I think, because we got all the local midwives, doctors, healthcare professionals to own it and feel really proud that they were doing something that was really going to improve women's health. And so we got to a point where in about 2016, 2017, when I'd become the president, I ended up saying to Jeremy Hunt, who was then the Secretary of State for Health, you know, Mr. Hunt, I can't understand this. Why can I do this so successfully in the foothills of Kilimanjaro and under Tabletop Mountain? And I can't do it in Paddington, in my own hospital. And I can't do it in Brixton. It really did make them think. And interestingly, one of the things that has come out of COVID in a very positive way is that although everyone agreed with me that this post-delivery contraception was a fantastically simple model, it was cheap to deliver, and it made my midwifery colleagues feel very empowered that they were looking after women holistically and not having to call doctors in to do things, which was also a very important issue. Um, But, you know, during COVID, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic in April 2020, I said to one of our our, um, colleagues, I said, look, you know, we're going to have a real problem in a few months because there aren't going to be any women who can get a hold of contraception. The GP surgeries are closed. There are no family planning clinics, it seems, anymore. What are we going to do? And she said, well, have you got an idea? I said, yes, I have. So she will just do it. And then for the first time, instead of arguing about the silos of who was going to pay for this and who was going to do that, I just said, well, what's the budget code? And she wrote it for me on a, on a post-it and I went and did it. You know, because the other thing I've learned, Kathy, is it's much better to say you're sorry if you've overstepped the mark than it is to ask <laughs> for permission. Because when you ask for permission, usually people sort of start to think, well, perhaps she shouldn't be doing it. What we did was we almost exactly replicated what we did in sub-Saharan Africa. We trained the midwives and the junior doctors um, and the senior ones if they wanted to learn. Um, We trained them all about how they could offer post-delivery contraception. And we then started attending all the Zoom platforms for the women's antenatal classes, which had all gone virtual. And in fact, I would reach far more women in the session I did every month for 20 minutes than I ever used to going to antenatal clinics day after day. Because of course, they were all online. They could ask questions. They could put things in the chat. So you know, one of my mantras has always been, you know, never waste a crisis because they can really facilitate change. And as a result of this pilot study that we did at St. Mary's and then across Imperial, the Northwest London commissioners have now got us to scale this up. And we're just hoping that when we've scaled that up and shown how beneficial it is and how simple it is to deliver, 
that there will be many other places or many other towns or cities in the UK that will be able to follow suit. And indeed, already, I mean, Edinburgh is doing, doing a really good job at this as well. There's a group in Oxford who have done something very similar. But it's a question of grasping opportunities and, and, and actually, I suppose, it's putting common sense at the front of the decision making, isn't mm. it? Mm. So you, you say that was remarkably simple to deliver and you are exceptionally modest. Is this so commonplace to you now that you no longer kind of feel proud at what you're doing because it, you just take it in your stride? No, enormously proud. I think the thing I get the most enjoyment from is sort of the teaching other people how they can become expert at this and become also become good communicators. And I've, I was very lucky um, at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, first of all, I had a, a job that I had to go into. And I think that's quite a good thing because I think many people have suffered because they've not been able to go to work. I, I get enormous enjoyment from the people that I'm working with, it's very affirming when you can see them growing and blossoming out. And so the three or four people that helped me get this post-delivery contraception program uh, up and running are, are absolutely fabulous individuals, a midwife, a nurse, a junior consultant colleague. There's such opportunities for people to grow. And I think also, I think it's really very important to remember that you can travel a lot farther and a lot faster in life if you don't care too much who gets the credit along the way. Because, you know, when you have a success, there's usually lots of credit to hand out. So if you can just encourage people to feel that way and do things in a collaborative way, I think it would, it, it, it's, it's obviously very, very important. And it's very life affirming. It's, it's great. So there are some really remarkable achievements here. Can I bring the tone down a little bit back to what you were saying about the funding cuts to the NHS and how women are disproportionately hit by this? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, we, you know, there's a lot more discussion these days around awareness of the issue of period poverty, for example. Tell us a little bit about your experience in that regard. Well, as a quirk of sort of histor history, historically, uh, many women's services have been, were funded within Public Health England. And um, after the Health and Social Care Act uh, of 2012, Public Health England's budget was cut by about 40%. That's an awfully large percentage. And this had obviously knock-on effects on a lot of community services. So contraception, period management, uh, menopause treatment, uh, cervical screening to prevent cervical cancer. Um, so this was a massive reduction in budget. I mean, there were, there were cuts in the NHS as well, um, percentage cuts per year, uh, but it was a disproportionate amount um, for women because, and I don't, think they, I don't think anyone did it deliberately, but it's just a quirk of history that so many women's maintenance services were funded by Public Health England. The vast majority of occasions when girls and women go to the doctor, certainly to gynecologists, they're not ill. They're just going to do maintenance stuff. They're going to have a cervical smear or they're going to get contraception. You're not ill when you have contraception. You only have contraception so you don't get pregnant when you have sex, which you hope is going to be enjoyable, as we started off by saying. And, you know, when you're having, uh, when you're pregnant, you're not ill. So you're doing normal things. And the other thing at the other end of the life course scale, you know, when you become menopausal, you need a bit of help. A lot of women would benefit from having some replacement therapy because they've got a hormone insufficiency and they find it quite difficult to adapt to. We're very, very bad at providing them with those maintenance services to carry on with their lives. So um, I, I think that's a really important point that all these services seem to be, well, many of them were funded by Public Health England. And effectively, they took away the, they took away much of the funding for the maintenance services and we became even more a disease intervention service. You didn't go onto the radar until you had a really big problem. 
Whereas if I was to draw you a picture of your life course, I could predict what you need at almost every stage. This is not clever stuff. This isn't rocket science. This is just common sense. We can predict what's going to be needed. So rather than wait for you to fall over, literally or or metaphorically, and have a problem, why don't we try and predict that? Um, And that was what a lot of my arguments were when I was president at the RCOG. And, you know, I do remember on several occasions having to use sort of shock tactics. That sounds a bit dramatic. But, you know, I do remember saying to one very senior person in the Department of Health, these poor girls who aren't able to go to school because of period poverty, they can't afford, you know, period products. Um, And this person turned around to me and said, well, which country are you talking about? Because she knew that I'd done a lot of overseas work. And I said, this country this country, you know, it's this city, London. Um, so it is extraordinary how cocooned, actually, I suppose, many of us are. And in fairness, Cathy, you know, 15 years ago, I don't think I understood this either. I was tootling along doing my highly specialist stuff in my ivory tower teaching hospital. And I didn't really have a, an understanding of the impact about all these things. And then I go back to that mentor who ensured that I became an obstetrician and gynecologist. And I, I always remember her talking to me in year three of medical school, it was the first year we did face-to-face attachments and talking about the fact that um, I'd been interested in doing psychiatry. And she said to me in this very Eastern European accent, oh no, she says, you don't want to do that. Plenty of psychiatry in obstetrics and gynecology. And you'll be able to spend your whole life helping girls and women to fulfill theirs if you do this subject. Um, and, And I think that's true. It is the most extraordinary topic. So for any girls or boys uh, who are on this call and are thinking about doing medicine, we need lots of obstetricians and gynecologists. And you can look after them. You do a bit of medicine, a bit of surgery, a bit of public health, a bit of epidemiology. Um, all sorts of fascinating things. There's a, there's a role for everybody. So that's my plug for my specialty. Brilliant. At the beginning of this episode, we talked about the need for greater openness. We have seen people talking about the menopause much more openly. There was a documentary by Davina McCall. Having said that, many women who are going through menopause or who are perhaps perimenopausal, like myself, are having girls um, who are going through their teenage years as well. Is that a perfect storm, the menopausal mum and the teenage daughter? Or actually, do you see it as not a, as a real kind of opportunity for open discussion and greater understanding of each other? Oh, a real opportunity. But then you've probably worked out by now, I, I'm an incurable optimist. <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't function unless my cup was half full all the time. Um, but I do think it's a fantastic uh, opportunity uh, for communication, for understanding. And, uh, you know, there are many, many young girls that I talk to who are really, really puzzled by, you know, their mum who's grumpy and this, that and the other. And they are very compassionate and very understanding if if they're given a little bit more information. So it all comes to explaining things in ways that are accessible to the listener. And there's always a way to do that. And then they can become part of helping her to sort that out and vice versa. But, you know, when we did the Better for Women report, we did a very large survey of 4,000 girls and women to really find out what women wanted, because I didn't want to fall into the trap of writing a report that I wanted our government to adopt And then assume that what doctors thought was important was important. And what was very interesting was that there were still women, there are still girls in this country, Cathy, who the first time they have a menstrual period, they don't know what's happening to them. Wow, that is remarkable. So we've got a lot of work to do and we can never 
you know, rest on our laurels or be complacent about this. I mean, I, I was really, really struck by that. And I, and I kept thinking to myself, oh, I can remember feeling at one point quite tearful that if my twin daughters, who are now nearly 29, if they started the periods and they didn't know what was happening, I, I just thought to myself, oh, my God, I've let them down. And I'm sure every mother and every father will feel exactly the same way. I mean, dads can do an enormous amount at normalising it, talking to their daughters, um, you know, even silly little things like perhaps you're in Sainsbury's or in Aldi or something. And, you know, you're just going along the thing and you go past the deodorants and the shampoo. And, and what about saying to them, well, do you need any period products while we're here? Uh, little things, you know, just to make it normal so that everybody talks about it and, and it conveys an understanding about it. Not saying, oh, it's not something we talk or go and talk to your mother about it. I mean, possibly going to talk to your mother about it is not a bad piece of advice, but how marvellous if all those dads felt empowered to be able to say, what can I do to help you, darling? But I, I do think that the key to all this is, is education. So um, it really, really is. And, you know, there's a marvellous quote by that fabulous man, Sir Michael Marmot, in his wonderful book called The Health Gap. And in it, he says at one point, if there was a single intervention that I could um, impose to improve health, it would be education. And in a global context, the education of women, because when you educate women, everybody benefits from it. So I, I think that's absolutely crucial. So let me ask you then on that topic, how do you get young girls to engage with the idea of being pregnant? We want to avoid girls becoming teenage mothers for all the reasons that you've explained. But how do you get a girl who is thinking about her education, who's thinking about her career to engage with the idea of having a baby when it might seem like the least relevant thing to her at that particular time? Well, I think there's a very strong nurturing streak. And I think that many women think very fondly about becoming a mother. It is absolutely wonderful. I mean, I'm sure you'd agree with me. My, my twin daughters are the best thing that's ever happened to me. I mean, they drive me scatty and they still cost a fortune. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they, they talk about the, 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 when they have children and I think they're going to plan to. It's not about telling people what to do. It's about empowering them to understand what's right for them. So, the, you know, you've got very fertile soil there, haven't you? Pardon the pun. <laughs> if you can capture that bit about that altruism, you, you can really do things. I mean, most of the very overweight obese mothers that we see, they don't really understand what the problem is. They don't realise that fat is an organ and that it's producing all sorts of weird chemicals. And if you've got things like polycystic ovaries, then your weight, your body mass index is going to affect your ability to ovulate. And in my field of miscarriage, of course, when you're very overweight, all these inflammatory chemicals that go around in the fat affect the way the embryo implants. So we know that very overweight women have a much higher rate of recurrent miscarriage. And I still get letters to say, I've read your book on miscarriage and I've written another one about how to manage your pregnancy yourself. Um, and now I feel that I've learned what I need to learn. I mean, that is it. When we taught you to ask me earlier about, you know, what gives me a boost, it's that, you know, because that woman is now empowered. And then, you know, it, it's, it's a mushroom effect, you know. The other issue is that how you behave during pregnancy, physiologically, how your body responds to pregnancy is often an indicator of the medical problems you may have in later life. So, if you get a bit of gestational diabetes, for example, it's absolutely predictable that you're going to become a type 2 diabetic by probably the age of 50 or 55. If you develop a bit of high blood pressure in pregnancy or if you get actual preeclampsia, or um, we know that those women get a heart disease and are more likely to have strokes at a much earlier age than their next door neighbour. 
And when it comes to mental health, we know that one in five girls and women will have some form of mental health problem, usually depression, um, during the pregnancy or or the postpartum period or the first year of their baby's life. And we know that those one in five women are marking themselves out as someone who's likely to need mental health services later. So one of my other things that I'm trying to get people to be much more understanding about is that we collect all this information about women throughout their pregnancy, bucket loads of it, and then we don't do anything with it. Um, we need to address it. And, you know, if you've had a bit of high blood pressure, then you really need that woman to understand that she can, if she uses medications and she loses weight, she stops smoking and she takes regular exercise, that she can really change her likelihood of having a cardiovascular problem or a stroke. Why do you think that that data from which you can extrapolate is not routinely made available to women after they've had babies? Well, it is routinely available because they know it. I mean, they've got the data and then they carry their own records and they've usually got an app now. But I mean, it's again, it's, it's about empowering them to understand what this data is signifying for them. And that takes time and it takes joined up services, doesn't it? But it comes back to my point and the central pivot of that Better for Women report is that if you want to do it well, you need to put the girls and the women in the middle and then you build the services around them, not make them run around all the services, which demands that they understand it all in order to know which ones to go to. And I think that's an unreasonable you know, expectation. We've got to build things around them. It takes a lot of commitment from a lot of different people to give up their territories and possibly give up their ring fence budget for something and to think about how can we make it better for her. I mean, one of the reasons why we have a 45% unplanned pregnancy rate in this country is because contraception is commissioned in three different silos and the silos don't talk to each other. So there's a bit of contraception for this and there's a bit of contraception for this and a bit of contraception for this. Maternity services are funded by NHS England an improvement, but they have to pick up all the maternities that are more complicated when women have an unplanned pregnancy or a very short interpregnancy interval. You know, I'm sure it's the same in the education world that if you don't have to pick up the casualties for when you don't do it right, there's not an awful lot of incentive to get it right. Yeah, but I mean, that will need, will require a kind of societal paradigm shift, though, won't it? Putting women and girls at the heart and putting the services around them, given the kind of, you know, the data bias as documented by people like Caroline Criado Perez in favour of of men within this world. Yes, but I think that we should use the COVID um, disaster as a positive tool in this because, you know, I, I mentioned the post-delivery contraception model, which only came about because of COVID. And we should use that and say, well, okay, we need some well women hubs. You know, we used to have well women clinics where you could go and get everything sorted out in one afternoon rather than take four lots of time off work. Um, and I don't think we can expect every GP practice to have a dedicated women's health expert. I don't think that's reasonable. But it wouldn't be difficult to identify in every community over a certain population number that there has to be somebody there um, who's got an interest in this and takes special expertise. Because I still see women and girls at quite late stages in their lives who have struggled with painful periods and heavy periods and have been told, well, it's just normal, just get on with it. And there's no need for them to do it. So I think it's really important that we do get clinics where you can go and discuss all these things um, so that you're not fobbed off um, with something that can be so easily treatable. Yes, absolutely. What a brilliant note on which to leave it. I am so incredibly grateful to you for being here today. I've learned so much and we are so grateful to you for sharing your expertise and wisdom. Professor Leslie Regan, thank you so much. Pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST when I'll be with BT's Director of Security, Michaela Hart, on how we stay safe online. It's actually being careful about the information you're sharing. You have a school emblem on your blazer. If you're on video, people will know which school that you work at or you attend. So it's just actually being careful in a constructive way rather than in a scaremongering way. I'll see you then.